0: Bonsoir, good evening. Euh, bienvenue à cet événement sur les élections européennes. Je vais me présenter moi-même. Je suis Ruth Tassonneville. Je suis euh, au département de sciences politiques à l'Université de, de, de Montréal. Euh, je suis aussi titulaire de la chaire de recherche du Canada en démocratie électorale, un des co-organisateurs de cet événement avec euh, le Centre pour l'étude de la citoyenneté démocratique ainsi que le Centre Jean Monnet. Um, It's a real pleasure to welcome you all here for this event on the European elections that are coming up this week. Um, We decided to put together this panel of experts because these are really exciting elections. There's a lot coming up and there's a real interest in this election, not just in Europe and in European countries, but also. Abroad and in the Canadian context as well, there is a lot at stake. We think in this in this particular election, you can you can think of the fact that there's a couple of parties, types of parties that that seem to be gaining popularity in many of these European countries. We might see a rise of some eurosceptic parties. We might see a rise of populist parties, and we might also see the effects in terms of vote shares of the mobilization around the environment. With student strikes all over Europe and this, the, the, the environmental issue gaining salience uh, in many European countries. So, this is going to be an exciting election, and we've uh, brought together a set of experts on European politics and public opinion. In the European Union, experts on radical right wing parties, experts on green parties, and experts on political political communication and election campaigns and in what 's going to follow they're going to be addressing many of the issues that that, that that you're all wondering about and about what is going to be happening in this in this upcoming election before starting the debate and be, before handing over to our panelists here, who are gonna be talking about what they think are the main issues in, the, in this election, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to kind of set the stage and to give a short intro about what is really at stake at this election, what these elections are about, and who will be elected in this election, what, what are Europeans voting for in the upcoming elections? And to do so, I am not gonna give you an intro to EU institutions because that would take way too long. I'm just going to be focusing on what people are going to be voting for and how the vote that is going to take place this week is going to affect a number of different institutions at the EU level. There's obviously going to be consequences for the European Parliament because the election is an election for choosing members for the European Parliament. So 751 members of the European Parliament will be elected in this election Last election was five years ago. It's been a while, a lot has changed changed since in many of these European countries. The elections are taking place between Thursday and Sunday. In each of those 28 member states, that still includes the UK, given that the UK has not left the European Union yet, they still have to take part in this election. So just to give you an overview, a couple of countries are going to uh, are going to vote on Thursday, then it's going to be more on Friday, but most countries are going to have their election on Sunday. So Sunday is really when we're going to have the election results uh, coming in and, and and the results being counted. Different countries have different numbers of members, um, and that is roughly proportional, not completely because obviously small countries as well need a certain amount of of representatives in the the European Parliament. Um, There's plans already for when the UK leaves the European Union and how seats are going to be redistributed. But for now, the European Union is sticking to the 751 members, which includes lots of members from from the big countries, such as Germany, Italy, France, um, uh, and, and, and also all the other countries. Uh, who have more or less um, MEPs. The election has to follow some sort of proportional rules. So that, that, that is kind of an important thing to know uh, when you're going to be seeing the results coming in from this election. Uh, all countries have to choose their MEPs by proportional rules. They can decide themselves what kind of rules they're going to be using but countries like the UK and France also have to choose their MEPs according to proportional rules. That obviously results in an advantage for some of these smaller parties, the challenger parties, like the extreme right or like the green parties. They're obviously going to benefit from these kinds of rules. It is also important to know that in each of those 21 member states, Citizens are voting for the parties that they know. They're voting for national parties or regional parties, national or regional candidates. However, just an example randomly picked from Belgium, uh, where people are voting for the national parties, the parties that they know well, and the candidates that they know well from their own setting. Those parties, however, and the MEPs once elected will organize themselves in the European Parliament and be organized in certain groups according to their ideologies. Uh, social Democratic parties working together in the, in the European Parliament, um, Christian Democratic parties working together, Liberal parties, Green parties, they're all forming groups in the European Parliament, but they're not presented as such on the ballots that people are going to be seeing when they enter the voting booth this week. There's lots of predictions on what might happen in this upcoming election. And how the different groups that are in parliament might do better or worse in this election than they did five years ago. Um, those predictions are affected by different sorts of indicators and variables, are included in those models. Those include how parties in each of those countries are faring over time. A couple of these parties, like Green parties, are doing well in the polls, so they might gain votes. But in addition, in, in these kinds of predictions, in terms of which groups are going to do better or worse this time, this time, or have more seats this time than they had last time. You should also take into account that those parties strategically pick the group that they're going to be a member of in the European Parliament. So there might be some shifts as well in which parties are going to be a member of which groups. And um, at the front of the Eurosceptic parties in particular, there's efforts to to, to put together a new uh, kind of group to work together in the European Parliament. It is not only the European Parliament that is at stake in this election. The European Commission, as well as an institution, that is going to be affected directly by this election. Currently, the European Commission is headed by uh, Juncker from Luxembourg. Um, but that is going to change after this election. And if you want to know who is going to be in charge of the European Commission, then we should look at the Spitzenkandidaten. The main groups in the European Parliament have put forward names for candidates who will, if that party uh, does well in this election, who will be the candidates to uh, be the president of the commission. So depending on what parties fare well, one of these candidates might turn out to be uh, in charge of the commission after these elections. It is not only the candidate that's got most, most support or that finds a majority in the European Parliament to support a candidacy that will be elected. That candidate should also get the agreement of a third institution, the European Council. The European Council is basically um, the heads of uh, state and government in the different countries, the heads of government in different countries. Coming together, they have to approve of whomever is proposed as the president of the European uh, Commission. And there as well, there's some changes coming up. So there's a limited number of countries where we might change in who's going to be in that European Commission because a couple of countries, basically two countries here, uh, will have elections on exactly the same day, Belgium and Lithuania. So there, there's there's going to be some change at the level of the um, uh, council as well. Furthermore, there's more elections coming up pretty soon. Denmark's got elections coming up, Austria is going to have elections soon now as well. So there's there's gonna be more change coming up uh, in the next couple of months at the level of um, the council. Also because what's gonna happen in this European Parliament election will definitely affect national level politics in each of these countries. And if some of these parties, fringe parties, are doing really well, that might put pressure on the other parties to perhaps call elections. To sum up, what is at stake in this election? The European Parliament is up for grabs. There's 751 MEPs that will have to be elected. The Spitzenkandidaten in particular are both looking looking out for because one of them is going to be leading the the, the, the head of the president of the new um, commission. Furthermore, there's going to be some minor changes in national level politics, but at that level there's more to come in the next couple of months. With that really short intro, with lots of information uh, on the elections and what to expect in this election, uh, I think I set the stage. And it's now time to hand over to our panelists who are gonna be discussing about what, according to them, are the main issues and how this election might, or might not, change the future of the European Union. So on that note, I'll hand over to my colleague, Laurie Baudonnet, and she will introduce the panelists to you.
1: So, uh, to talk about uh, these issues and this uh, very exciting election uh, with us tonight, we have four specialists uh, coming from well across across the Atlantic and also uh, uh, down south of Canada from the U.S. So directly on my left, um, he's uh, Katjana Gatterman. She's assistant professor at the University, um, sorry, at the Amsterdam School of Communication Research. Uh, she's a specialist. Um, in public opinion and political campaigns specifically in the European Union. Then uh, Joost van Spanje is Associate Professor in the communicu- Communication Science Department of the University of Amsterdam. Uh, Joost uh, specialised in uh, political journalism and also the quality of democracy and how media and parties uh, play together um, in this regard. Um, next to yours, Daniel Stockemer is full professor in the School of uh, Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. He's um, a specialist of the um, extreme uh, right in Europe um, and uh, also political participation and political representation. And um, Next to Danielle is J.J. Spoon, uh, who is associate professor of political science at the University of Pittsburgh and the director of the European Studies Center and the Germany Center. Um, she is a specialist of um, political party strategies, in particular, uh, new and uh, small uh, parties and how these challenges um, might uh, change the way um, electoral democracy uh, work out. So just to give you a brief overview of how we're going to proceed tonight, first, uh, each panelist uh, is going to have a five-minute inaugural statement to to answer um, the first question. Then we will allow them to uh, respond to each other and then go on further with a couple of questions. And then uh, we will open it up uh, to the floor for questions. So you uh, could either, you will be able to use the microphone over there, or you can also uh, live tweet uh, your question, and then we will convey it uh, through the microphone um, like this. Uh, So without further ado, then the first question is uh, in which ways will the election uh, change the future of Europe?
2: Okay. Thank you very much uh, for having me here. Um, I would like to talk about uh, the Spitzenkandidaten, which Ruth already mentioned. So it's actually a German word for lead candidates and uh, it's really about uh, the pan-European lead candidates. Um, these are nominated by the European party families, not the national party and it was uh, first done that way in 2014. And it was the initiative of the European Parliament back then which interpreted the Treaty of Lisbon in its favor because there were some changes in the treaty which stated that uh, the council in the nomination of the uh, candidate for commission president have to take into account the election results and ultimately the European Parliament will elect uh, the the nominee basically so and so the European Parliament said uh, early on okay in 2014 let's uh, encourage all political groups uh, to put forward uh, elite candidates and the idea was that they actually um, raise the awareness of voters interest of course to work against falling turnout um, and also to increase or maintain the legitimacy of the European Parliament and ultimately the Commission because Parliament holds the Commission accountable. So um, that was the first time and we've seen, uh, Ruth has already uh, told us, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, he was back then the lead candidate for the uh, EPP, the People's Party, and he was eventually also uh, nominated uh, by the Council and ultimately elected. Now, uh, for this time round, uh, the parliament actually uh, mentioned in the resolution in 2014 that uh, was a success. Uh, It doesn't say much more, but um, uh, it's of course when you look at, uh, well, one of the lead candidates was elected commission president in the end. But what I would argue um, is we don't really know yet whether it's really success because the effects on voters are actually not clear. Um, So, I've done uh, some research on the one hand into media coverage, so looked across uh, several European countries how much attention actually these lead candidates got. Uh, We have some uh, variation across countries, so in those countries which actually had a lead candidate, like uh, France and Germany, they paid uh, comparatively more attention than, for instance, the United Kingdom. Uh, to these candidates, but we don't also have much uh, comparison because it was the first time because we, could, we cannot say that it was a lot or only a little attention. This year we will be able, after we systematically analyze this <laughs> from uh, the current campaigns, we will be able to draw a comparison. Um, also um, I've done research into uh, voter um, uh, opinions and recognition, so we asked voters in the Netherlands. Uh, to what extent uh, they actually know these candidates and can also align them with their political preference. And it turns out that only few voters can actually make sense of these candidates. We only uh, focused on the big three basically from the biggest parties. But even there, um, voters had a hard time and they needed actually to have uh, or regularly follow the news and also have some uh, information about the EU at hand, so those who, who had some more knowledge, they could make sense of them, but others not. So that is of course something um, which um, is influenced um, uh, or which is not fully set in place. So. Um, I would like to make a few pointers for this election, actually, so as I already said, uh, we are now interested whether there's actually some more attention also by the media uh, paid to it, uh, since uh, we saw last time, okay, actually one of the lead candidates became Commission president, we have to say, however, perhaps we we'll talk about it a little bit later as well, uh, that still is not clear, as I said, uh, the council still has to nominate, the majorities are not clear, so we'll have to come back to that issue after the elections as well. But in terms of voters, we had again uh, some uh, TV debates, that was also last time the case, Um, These are, of course, um, there's some difficulties. First of all, uh, these uh, debates are originally in English, mostly. One candidate this time uh, spoke in French that had to be translated. And also national television station, they then translate also in real time uh, so that uh, the viewers at home, be that uh, Sweden or Slovakia, can also follow. Um, But that is, of course, also an issue because you cannot really uh, see the personality of the politician if, if he or she doesn't uh, speak in her own language for instance or also is translated into another language so that is of course a bit different then of course you need to uh, be aware that uh, these these debates are followed by people who are anyways highly interested in the campaign so it's it's perhaps difficult to reach those who are, who are not uh, yet interested in EU elections or actually want to have the plan to go voting. Um, so, um, but then it's important that other media also talk about them. And also we have to talk about political parties, so I've done also some research into election campaign posters and last time for instance. Uh, parties in the Netherlands and Italy, they haven't really uh, had the lead candidates of the European lead candidates on the election posters. So how can voters then recognize them? There's of course still the national lead candidates, which is a bit paradox that's uh, at the same time, uh, voters of course have their national candidates. So these are a few things uh, um, uh, to look out for also, or to, to keep in mind actually this time. Generally I think it's a, it's a positive procedure because it, it uh, I don't see that it does do much harm in that sense, but it's still a young procedure. Voters need to be socialized, candidates, and parties. So um, I don't think that it will be a massive uh, uh, improvement to last time, Um, but yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
3: thank you, Uh, Laurie. so uh, the question you, uh, you asked was, uh, will these elections, uh, these European parliamentary elections of this week, uh, will they change the future of the EU? And uh, I have a short answer and a long answer to that. The short answer is no. Uh, and uh, that is basically, well, you know, I mean, of course the European Parliament has become more important uh, in recent years more powerful also, but to shape the future of the, uh, of the EU uh, in this uh, European parliamentary election, uh, no. The long answer, um, that is still no. Um, but given, uh, of course, the limitations of the European Parliament, uh, it, um, I would still note uh, at least uh, one um, yeah, uh, very important things about uh, how the winds uh, may have changed. And um, yeah, the, the main uh, takeaway point is, uh, I think, that um, uh, so if you're pro-EU, uh, there is, there is some, something to, uh, to be, uh, well, uh, you know, positive about. In terms that the pro-EU uh, forces have, uh, I think, uh, yeah, strengthened uh, perhaps as a byproduct of recent developments. And I will uh, just briefly uh, elaborate on that. So what we have seen in recent years is that uh, rather anti-EU forces, uh, euro forces uh, have been pretty strong, um, uh, as a byproduct of all kinds of uh, developments, such as uh, the Brexit, uh, such as the immigration crisis, uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of elements that seemed uh, very much uh, to blow winds in the sails of Eurosceptic political parties. Uh, Brexit was of course an unprecedented uh, success for those who wish the worst for the EU. Uh, in general and in the UK in particular, and the immigration uh, crisis was a gift sent from heaven to uh, all kinds of anti-immigration parties, in particular the uh, ensuing chaos in uh, Greece and uh, and Italy, Um, and uh, all kinds of uh, fear-mongering that uh, that ensued. Uh, So very clearly uh, anti-EU forces, I mean, Partly simply as a byproduct, but still, uh, they 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 were uh, they have been uh, pretty uh, strong, which bode did not bode very well for uh, for the 2019 uh, elections. But then, it seems that at least a little bit, uh, the winds have uh, have changed in this respect. Uh, In terms that um, there is still uh, very clear, uh, strong, uh, and articulate anti-EU forces, and uh, these parties, as you have seen also in the uh, slide put up by uh, Beirut, very Eurosceptic forces will very likely uh, win, be uh, enforced, and also. Uh, will probably uh, be uh, very strong at uh, obstructing whatever they, uh, whatever they can. Um, however, um, there is also a pro-EU uh, side that has become uh, stronger and more confident as, uh, as, as far as I'm uh, concerned. And that is partly uh, perhaps a, a more uh, an ongoing evolution uh, that we have seen also at the country level uh, where uh, you see an evolution of uh, uh, of, of pro and uh, anti-EU forces uh, uh, fighting it uh, it out over time. In some countries, much earlier, such as Denmark and France, uh, already since the 70s and 80s. Uh, whereas in other countries, such in, as in my country, the Netherlands, very recently. So, but partly also as a byproduct. And uh, then as a byproduct of, uh, of, well, three recent developments, I would say, and um, uh, I, will, uh, I will finish with that. Uh, first of all, again, uh, the Brexit. Uh, I think uh, anyone uh, who has witnessed uh, the, uh, the development of, uh, of, of Brexit in, uh, in, uh, in the last two years, uh, I mean, has seen that uh, it's uh, not going uh, that well. Uh, in all respects with uh, the Brexiteers uh, in their saga, uh, leading to perhaps also to enforce pro-EU uh, uh, forces in, uh, in basically most other uh, EU countries. Second of all, uh, we have Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who will lead uh, an army uh, of uh, liberal pro-EU uh, representatives uh, into the uh, European uh, Parliament, perhaps joining uh, the Liberals, and then uh, we have third, uh, also the, of course, the salience of the climate change uh, that will be in the hearts of minds of many Europeans, even if they are not. You know, these issues are not always very visible in the campaign in every country at every time, but still, uh, that uh, that also uh, gives us some kind of byproduct. Uh, more uh, force to uh, pro-EU uh, forces. Um, adding up to, uh, and that's my final uh, final observations, adding up to uh, that the center-right and center-left may well lose their majority and will have to lean on other parties, they will probably look at two rather pro-EU forces, the Liberals and the Greens, uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, it seems at least that um, yeah the winds have uh, have changed a little bit. Uh, will these elections change the future of the EU? Again, short answer is no, and the long answer is still no. But maybe uh, there is a little bit of change. Thank you.
4: Okay, um, I will pick up on what you said. I um, mean. OK, what will change? I would say not that much. First, I mean, turnout will stay low. EU elections, I mean, the last two times, they're a little more than 40%. It will probably go slightly up, but I think not because people are more interested in voting, per se, but because many countries have scheduled il- other elections with the EP elections. For example, in Belgium, you have national elections. In Germany, and Spain, you have um, local elections. So there will be some countries where turnout will go up. And maybe in general, we'll have a slight increase, but it will be probably due to scheduling of elections. Did the election become more important for the media, for parties, for voters? The answer is also no. I mean, if I follow very closely Germany and France. And if you look, the election only has really secondary importance in the news. I mean, they're not on the first page or even like the odd story, but there's a lot of other things um, that are discussed. And we are like less than a week before. So this idea that these elections are second order still holds. Second order means less important. Um, But there will be some changes. Will they be detrimental? No. One of the changes, and Joost has said, is that we have always had, since the existence of the European Parliament, a majority of uh, social Democrats and um, Christian Democrats. It's probably the first time that these majority will fall. It's not 100 percent sure but the polls look like that. So that means the, the, the two main pillars of European integration will no longer have a majority. Is this detrimental? Probably not, because not all the votes they lose go to extreme parties. The two small parties, the, the Liberals and the Green Party, are both expected to win. This can have vel- relatively interesting, less important, but still some important repercussions that. We might have a different coalition, so it might be that the social democrats, the liberals, and the green party, and uh, it's it's unclear, but there might be shi- or that there might be shifting forces. Is this is this important? I would say not that much because I think the big dividing line is not between what we have had before between let's say social democrats and conservatives. It's between populists and pro-European forces, and if we. If we, uh, for example, if you look at the, um, also the pro and the, 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 the anti-EU forces, for example, there's something in Europe that's called Pulse of Europe. It's like a in, in every city there's like events where they kind of praise Europe and they kind of raise awareness of Europe, and that's basically all the main parties are supporting that. And who's against it is the, the fringe parties. So I think for the overall um, development of the EU or even what's decided in the parliament, the, the influence is small. But nevertheless, we see, I mean, the center is basically losing and small parties are gaining. And it, we also w- will see gains on the le- radical left and, of course, on the radical li- right. Will they be detrimental? No. I mean, the radical right will, at most, in my opinion, get around 20%, the le- radical left, at most 10%. We still have a solid 70% majority. So, this, I mean, I don't see that this will really. Um, trigger any changes in how how Europe works, but still we have some small changes within the Parliament and also probably what makes up the majority. Thank you.
5: Uh, well, thank you uh, to uh, Ruth and Laurie for for having me here and and for this um, discussion. Um, I will follow my my two previous colleagues in also saying no. Um, and that's all I have to say. No. Um, but to uh, elaborate a bit um, on, on what has, has, has been said, um, will we see major changes? No. Um, but as, as Daniel has just said, I think we will see some changes sort of around the fringes. Um, just to put into a, a bit more context what's already been said, so since 1979, which is when we had the first uh, direct elections to the European Parliament, the Socialists and the conservative and the uh, Christian Democrats have held a majority. And so what will change likely is that those two parties which has been said are, have been sort of the pillars of European integration are likely to lose their majority. So that is that is an important change. However, has, as has already been said, with all of the other pro-European groups that will join them, the Greens and the Liberals for example, the pro-European Parties in the European Parliament will still have well over a majority, and so while we may see some changes within that block, we still will have, as has been said, and probably will be said again this evening, the pro-European forces uh, within the European Parliament will still will still hold the majority. Although that block may look very different, and what the conversation looks like within that block may change. Um, a second. Uh, change that we may see although again not sort of a cataclysmic change is again we will, as has been mentioned before, see a rise uh, of support for the, what are typically called the Euroskeptic parties, populist parties, um, the, the radical right, they go by sort of many many different names. Um, and, and again as, as has been said, polls show them winning maybe 20, 25 percent. So again, we, I think those numbers are important to keep in perspective that we're still going to have a majority that's pro-Europe, um, although what may grow is that anti, uh, anti-EU or Euroskeptic force. Something that's important also I think to note within that, that populist right-wing anti-Europe group is that they're very fragmented. And so I think even though they may gain they're, very, they're not a coordinated group. In other words, there's lots of dissension um, within the group on issues as diverse as, as the economy, as the relationship with Russia, et cetera. So there's no guarantee that even if the, that 20%, 25% gets elected, that they're going to behave and, and vote together. So the more fragmented and less coordinate, coordinated excuse me they are, the less likely they are to have much of an influence. And I think the third point um, that I'd like to make in terms of, uh, to support my no, is that there still is generally support among EU citizens for European integration. While there of course is support for these Euroskeptic anti-EU parties, there still is that feeling is not universal. And there still is support, recent surveys have shown that between 50 and 65% of voters would like to see more European integration within the EU. And so that's uh, again important to keep that in mind. That while there are there is support for some of these anti-EU parties, that by no means is a universal um, uh, feeling among among voters uh, in Europe. Um, and so I think um, the 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 final point that I would uh, that I would make is um, that uh, there is also in terms of when voters are going to vote. Right when when they're asked and have been asked in recent uh, public opinion surveys, what are you thinking about when you're going to vote? And as perhaps what the, we might uh, be uh, led to think given what we perhaps read in the media and sort of what the, these far-right parties have been talking about, that the major issues when uh, voters are going to vote is immigration, right, is globalization and these forces and how they're influencing Europe. But recent public opinion surveys have actually shown that the issues that voters are most interested in are things like inequality, healthcare, unemployment, climate change. The environment, excuse me, immigration is is maybe sixth or seventh depending on the country. Um, And so that's I think important to keep in mind that when voters are actually thinking about who they're going to support, they're thinking about sort of typical Domestic type issues that influence every single election, right? And that's not sort of these. Earth-shattering, huge changes, but things that we're all concerned about, and that voters everywhere are concerned about as well. And so, these elections, in some ways, right, are looking like national elections in terms of the the, the things that voters are interested in. And so, just to, to kind of come back to my no, um, to to, <laughs> to uh, agree with, with with my colleagues that I think we are going to see some changes, but at the at the end of the day, I, we still are going to have pro-European forces having the dominant position within the within the EU that voters are, there are voters across the board in terms of their support for the EU or less support, and that you know, voters are interested in a whole host of issues that are not just sort of these um, kind of lightning issues that um, some of the, the populist parties are talking about. Thank you, Eugene. thank
1: you um, everyone for this uh, inaugural statement. So before we move on to the next question. Uh, Do you want to react to uh, anything that uh, one of the the other panelists said? Sure.
4: Very quickly, I mean, just to reiterate, the European Parliament, they don't have legislative power. I mean, it's the commission that uh, suggests laws, and hence that also limits a lot of the influence of these fringe parties and the radical right and the radical left, because they cannot really propose their own laws or their own propositions. And since the European Commission will will remain very pro-EU, we will not see any change in the proposals that arrive at the parliamentary floor. This also shows that for the overall Europe, the, the impact will be relatively limited.
2: I wanted to uh, come back, to you made a comment about media coverage about the uh, elections and um, it is indeed true that uh, media pay less attention uh, to, um, to European Parliament elections compared to national elections for instance, but we also see colleagues have shown that over time there is more attention, so there's more politicization, but also media uh, paying more attention, and my research shows also regular attention uh, outside elections to European affairs, so, um, and we, we have yet to uh, see how uh, this time, maybe it stagnates, uh, we don't know how it goes back, but um, um, there also is a bit of focus, especially on these populists, uh, radical right, that the media, because it's negative news, conflict, uh, they like these sort of news and tend to focus more on that and not so, for instance, on policy uh, positions or something like that, which would also give voters uh, more information what's actually at yeah, stake. Um, so actually, uh, I wanted
5: to follow up um, on uh, uh, Catania, what you were talking about in terms of, in some ways, this disconnect between sort of campaigns in, uh, in, in, the, in the member states, right, in, in France, in Germany, et cetera, and then also these lead, the lead candidates as well. Um, and I thought it, uh, it, it quite interesting in following some of the campaigns of, of some of the green parties, for example, you see the, the, national, uh, the national campaigns, for example, in France, they have their lead candidates, they're all talking very much about, um, climate change and, and global issue, you know, issues that are very much uh, relevant across across the board with no mention actually at all of the lead candidate, um, And so I just wonder actually um, to, to ask you how you see the sort of the future of this, right? So how can, right, the idea of this lead candidate as you've talked about and as Ruth talked about as well was really as a, a way to kind of raise the salience a bit and sort of make these elections perhaps more European, right? If everyone that's a social democrat is going to vote for the same candidate effectively, although in practice they're voting for their own parties, and, and we haven't quite seen that yet, at least in the two elect, well, 2014 when this started, and then now um, we're seeing this not as much as well. So I just wonder if you have a, a thought in, t- in terms of how this process can be uh, uh, advanced so that it's realizing the goal that it, that it had.
2: Yeah, um, thank you. Um, Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's um, a really low, there is campaigns by the candidates themselves, so they are very active also on on Twitter or Facebook or other social media. But yeah, the support by national parties uh, varies also. There are some parties who do not campaign with them at all. Others do it well, depends also on who the candidate is and how pro-European they, for instance, are. That also plays a role. Um, so, what needs to happen in the future is that parties clearly tell their voters by the way, if you vote for us, you get this candidate. Um, so um, but that that is of course also a process that parties also have to socialize with and accept that it's going to happen and we have to see it depends also a bit what will happen now with the elections uh, who will actually be Commission president so if uh, none of the candidates actually uh, will be nominated by, by the council and in that case also the parliament accepts that so maybe the procedure might not be used next time. so there's a lot of, ifs and conditions, basically, what will happen next. But yeah, there needs to be more uh, socialization uh, with the candidates at a pan-European level in future elections if it continues, yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, just to, to underline uh, what you, uh, you just uh, said, uh, Kaciana, about uh, the news media, um, it is um, actually two things. Uh, One, uh, it is absolutely true that uh, there is a lot more attention to national elections than to European elections. And uh, two, it actually matters uh, also for vote choice. Uh, Let me uh, briefly elaborate uh, with an anecdote. Um, In my country in the Netherlands, uh, in 1999, um, there was famously uh, just one newscast about uh, the European election during the entire campaign. And that newscast was on the day before the election saying that uh, probably turnout is going to be low. So uh, this is an illustration of how poorly uh, covered these uh, European uh, elections were. Fast forward 20 years, uh, it has uh, become more, it has become uh, also perhaps a little bit uh, better in terms of nuanced. Um, but my second point is it also matters. Uh, just two examples, one is um, the um, quite substantial amount that the far right uh, tends to get in uh, news media matters. Uh, as uh, several researchers have repeatedly shown that media attention to uh, far-right uh, leaders, their issues, their parties, uh, basically uh, enhances uh, the vote for these, uh, for these parties in various contexts. Um, and second, uh, it has also been uh, shown in research that uh, particular uh, framings, so positive uh, framing of uh, the EU, uh, also in terms of, um, uh, in general, but also in terms of uh, talking about the benefits of the EU for the member state, uh, actually uh, seems to reduce uh, the vote for uh, Euroskeptic uh, parties among those who are actually exposed to such, uh, such uh, news content. So, uh, well, um, in brief, uh, there is, very little uh, coverage, and it is uh, very much uh, skewed, and uh, secondly, that matters. Um,
1: so I would like maybe to, um, to pick up on uh, the thing that, uh, one thing that um, some of you mentioned, the grand coalition. Uh, so as it was, uh, as it has been said, uh, traditionally the European Parliament Uh, works uh, through a coalition between the main center-right political group, the uh, European People's Party, and the uh, center-left, the Social Democrats Um, parties. Sometimes one of the two is strong enough to pass uh, some laws uh, through alliance with the liberal group, Uh, but more basically the parliament has been working on um, for years through this coalition between the center left and the center right. And as you mentioned for the first time in the history of the European Parliament, this might come to an end, meaning that um, there might one of the two groups might lose uh, the majority. So I just would like to hear you on whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing for first democracy and second the EU.
4: I mean, I would say again, it doesn't matter, <laughs> because there's not that much coverage, and there's not that much awareness. Actually, who makes the decision? It's not only the you also have to remember, European Parliament is only one out of the three different bodies, and so I and and I don't think even the decisions that will come out would be that much different, because most decisions there's no re, I mean among the pro-European parties, a lot of legislative proposals pass with a large majority. so You don't have the same opposition as you have in national parliaments. So I really don't think there will be a really big change in perceptions. Because if you ask Europeans who is in charge of the European Parliament, I think very few will know. If you ask, I mean, what's the grand coalition and what do the other parties do, very few will know. So I don't really think that um, this changes anything in the perception and changes anything in how democracy is perceived.
5: Well, yes, I agree, I agree with, 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 my, with my colleague here. I would say that I think it's actually, I w- I'll be pr- provocative and say I think it's actually a good thing for democracy in the sense that the reason that these parties, right, these are the major social democratic socialist parties and the Christian Democrats um, and some conservatives are not winning votes is because they're not res- being responsive to voters. Right, they're not offering things to voters that voters agree with. That voters are looking for something else, whether that's further to the left um, on climate change, on the economy, et cetera, Whether in voting for the Greens or voting for sort of further left-wing parties, or if it's or on the right. And so, in the sense that this is a demonstration of kind of how democratic politics works. Right, in other words, if parties are not uh, offering voters something that they agree with. Then voters have another option, and I think the fact that we're seeing that these parties, these national parties that belong to the socialist, the social democratic group, and to the European People's Party, are losing votes, right? I think that's a signal that they actually need—they're not. Being representative, but that voters, if they hopefully stay in and do, and actually vote, and as, as has been mentioned, turnout tends to be low in these elections. They have different parties to, to vote for, to vote for that better represent them on the issues that they find important. So I actually think, from a democr- democratic perspective, this we're actually seeing democr- multi-party democracy at work.
3: Uh, yeah, I would I would, I would definitely uh, also for the sake of discussion also. <laughs> Uh, back, to, uh, back to differ on, 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 on two points. One is exactly uh, what you say about that it's good to open uh, power decision-making or at least cooperating up to more uh, players uh, so as to enhance uh, responsiveness. Uh, and uh, more generally uh, coming from or living in a city uh, that uh, has been ruled uh, by the Social Democrats longer than uh, the Communist Party was in power in uh, in the USSR. Uh, w- we know that it's not good that just one or two parties are in power for a very long time, uh, for all kinds of reasons. It doesn't really matter which party. I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, there's also, I think, a second uh, 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 reason and. Uh that, that in, also in that terms I, I you know I I'm back to differ with, with you a little bit uh uh Danielle and that is uh, that it wouldn't matter uh whether for example the uh the, the Greens would be uh included in decision making or not. I think um of okay, I mean most I mean center right, center left, liberals, greens, they're all they all tend to be uh pro-EU uh, more or less, but then still there's all kinds of things like international treatments, uh, privacy, uh, also uh, attitudes towards uh, big corporations, uh, also um, uh, the urgency with which uh, climate change uh, issues are tackled. I think it, it might make a, a, a big difference actually uh, to what extent uh, the, the or whether the Greens are actually Part of, uh, of 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 solutions or or not, even if they're uh, even if they're small, just as an example of that it might actually uh, very much, uh, or to some extent also in terms of uh, outcomes, no matter how small, uh, matter um, uh, what uh, that that this uh, two-party coalition is going to be broken up.
4: I disagree, because I don't, I mean, that would imply that there are different laws coming from, the uh, different proposals coming from the commission. And um, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't see this. I mean, I would, I would agree with you if there would actually be a possibility to actively introduce laws. But since this is not the case in the European framework, I really don't see how mean singular decisions might be impacted and there might be no more negotiation between the parliament and the commission. But I think that's relatively marginal. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, just a
2: a couple of Uh, points. In addition, uh, I I, um, agree with the um, main things mentioned. Um, I think um, also what what JJ uh, said. um, I think it's uh, actually good if uh, there's also changes uh, um, so that coalitions have to be found more ad hoc rather than having the grand coalition always be there and then the majority is clear, but depending on the issue, you have to uh, fight for for majorities because also um, that will potentially, I cannot look in the future, but generate media attention because media love conflict and if there is a bit more uh, uh, political conflict in the European Parliament, perhaps also media report more about it, and ultimately citizens then also learn a bit more what their representatives actually do.
5: Yeah. We also I also like conflicts. Yes. No. And I think just to, to follow up, not only media likes conflict, but voters like conflict, right? Lots of studies have shown that when there's disagreement, voters actually pay more attention. Right? And they actually are better able to identify issues, identify parties' positions, etc. So a bit of conflict is actually not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, as as well and conflict not only generates interest can increase turnout right if voters see that there's actually a difference between what's on offer from the different parties and so a bit of conflict right not to the point where there's gridlock right that's obviously sort of where conflict can cause major problems where where you get to that point but a bit of disagreement and not just sort of politics as usual and which is off you know what we often think about with a grand coalition can actually generate interest and have some positive effects as well
1: So let's go ahead with a uh, with another question. Um, as uh, you, you, some of you also mentioned that the, the far right parties um, are well first very likely to gain more um, seats in the in the in the forthcoming election, but also the media and the campaign has been very much in many different countries about the, the so-called threat of the extreme right uh, at the European level. So I, I was uh, wondering if you could. Um, Uh, Maybe tell us a bit more about uh, the fact that the far-right parties have been organizing uh, themselves at the European level, just uh, the last weekend there was a a big meeting in uh, in Italy with uh, the National Front, the Italian League, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, So I would like to hear you a bit about uh, whether this has been a big issue in the campaign, and also how you see this is going in the next. Months or years, what is the future of this uh, European extreme right?
5: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so, I think um, this is obviously something that's on everyone's minds um, because there is, as we've all mentioned, sort of the, the rise of these parties and, and increasing support. Um, and as Laurie just mentioned, uh, Salvini from the League in Italy gathered. Uh, a team of uh, fellow travelers on um, this past weekend in Milan um, and the media has made it very clear or tried to that it's a, it's a very unified group um, but even within that group not all of them, not all of the leaders of these parties uh, were part of this meeting and there's a lot as, I, as, I, as I've mentioned and as others men- mentioned as well, there is quite a bit of um, disagreement among among the group. Um, it's around um, support for Russia um, as one of them. Um, there have been parties that are part of the sort of um, that are part of this far right group that um, have distanced themselves somewhat from Salvini and Le Pen in France, etc. because of this. Some of the um, some of the Scandinavian far right parties. The Polish Law and Justice Party has also made it very clear that, um, that they will not join a, a party that involves these, the, the, the pro Putin far right. And so I think that that's important to, 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 to keep in mind as we think about sort of the perhaps the threat from, from, from the far um, right. As of right now, as has been mentioned, right, all of the national parties, uh, once they're elected, form party groups, and we've been talking about these. Um, and right now, there seems to be um, perhaps three different uh, Euroskeptic groups, um, again, divided over some of these issues, even though they're all somewhat Eurosceptic um, or, or anti EU. And again, that makes it harder to really change the agenda and to really um, move any sort of, you know, make any major changes if they're not all in the same group and if they're all not sort of voting together. Um, The one thing that they all do agree on is that they want to, you know, change the EU from within. Um, Many of these far-right parties did support some version of a Brexit, whether it was Nexit in the Netherlands or Frexit in France or Fixit in Finland. But now most of them, in fact all of them, are really not supportive of this anymore because they've watched what's unraveled or not unraveled in the UK, right? We still don't have a Brexit. Um, and so have really kind of backed off of that, of that position and have said we really need to change the EU from within. right? Which in some ways is sort of code for trying to weaken the EU as much as possible from within the European Parliament if that is even possible. The problem is is that there's no real agreement on how to do that. right? How, does, how, do, how do these parties that are not necessarily organized and coordinated, how do they actually go about doing that? So while they all may agree on lessening the power of the supranational organization that is the EU, they really have no, not only agreement on the way forward, it's not clear what that way forward is. And so I I think we have to kind of recognize that on the one hand, while they are coming together in some ways and there's increasing support, what happens next uh, is perhaps less clear because of the fragmentation and as well as disagreement from within the group.
4: in the same party. Sometimes they've joined different party families. That shows, I mean, the same national party. That really shows how fragmented they are. I mean, I want to come back to another point you made with the media. And um, there's a famous quote of Jean-Marie Le Pen, which I think um, summarizes this a little bit. That says, I don't care what the media talks about as long as it talk about us, about our topics. I think that's a little bit what we see. And the more that they talk about them, the more they're in the public attention. And I also think that compared to other parties, I mean, for example, this famous meeting in Milano somehow was in the news everywhere. Wasn't really that important, in my opinion, but it shows that they still get their fair share of media attention. And I think that can, to a small degree, I won't overestimate it, contribute um, to the success. But also, I mean, they get the same disproportionate media attention. I mean, you just have to look at the US. I mean, everybody talks about Trump every day. I mean, it's not that strong in the European context. But I think we talk too much about these parties. And in, implicitly, they benefit. And also, to, to, to put this into perspective, we have kind of a populist tide right now. I mean, you can look everywhere, populist gain. And I think the Europe is part of it. And it's not specific what we see to the European Parliament. I mean, what we see, the results we will see will reflect what we'll see. Of what we have seen in a lot of national parliaments, and I don't think that compared to like what they their vote share in national parliaments is the uh, um, the radical right will gain in the European Parliament. So if you compare their vote share across Europe in the national parliament in the European Parliament, I it will be relatively similar, maybe even lower. So I think that's also to put things into perspective.
3: Uh, yeah. so I uh, mentioned uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, so I cannot uh, leave. Uh, uh, be left behind, of course. So I will mention Marine Le Pen. Uh, two things. Uh, first of all, to underline the the, the yeah the scattered history of uh, of of the far right trying to cooperate. Uh, there is this uh, uh, anecdote of uh, uh, the Italian far right uh, representative actually. Uh yeah, calling uh, Romanians uh, uh, out on having uh, uh, um, uh, making a crime a way of life. After which the Romanians actually left uh, the fraction and the whole fraction fell apart. Uh, that used to be the uh, poor level of integration of the far right, uh, say, uh, say 20, 25 years ago. Then in 2015, uh, they really pulled it together with uh, Geert Wilders and, uh, and Marine Le Pen uh, having a uh, uh, romance, and, uh, which led to uh, actually the love baby of 17 half million euros that they actually got of uh, EU funding. Um, uh, so they are uh, on a learning project, uh, but it's still uh, very difficult, I think. Uh, to uh, reiterate uh, and highlight the, uh, the, the, the well, the the fractions uh, or the fragmentation on the, on the, uh, on the far right. Um, But I think, um, as a second point, I think uh, underlying all this um, is uh, our issues of immigration and integration uh, that a lot, a lot of uh, European voters are uh, very much uh, concerned about. A lot of uh, voters actually wanting uh, to have uh, Australian or Canadian em- immigration uh, model, as they call it, um, and as as long as uh, as as dot, as that is not uh, put in place, or at least uh, issues here are not uh, taken care of in the eyes of those uh, voters, uh, this large segment of the electorate, uh, they will uh, this 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 tide will. Uh, keep on uh, rising in my uh, view, uh, with uh, clearly, as a byproduct again, uh, risk for the EU of, uh, well, basically uh, almost existential uh, proportions. So in that sense, uh, I think uh, the, the far right, I mean, uh, even if they're very scattered, and uh, even if they're, uh, well, they cannot do much more than obstruct, but um, yeah, um, still, I mean, there is a, there is a huge uh, potential of uh, of of danger for the EU uh, uh, in my view. Yeah,
2: uh, a couple of uh, comments in addition to that. Um, actually, uh, coming back uh, to the media, um, they yeah, that's perhaps. Uh, well, um, Yeah, one thing, uh, they focus on the European uh, parties or parties in other countries, uh, domestic media, so there you can see some Europeanization, Um, and of course also they have uh, leaders, Uh, some of them are rather charismatic, Uh, good communicators, um, and so that's of course also attractive uh, for media attention, even though um, um, I've done some research for the last elections uh, with a colleague and looking at to what extent actually transnationally uh, individual uh, far, or Eurosceptic, uh in general, leaders are visible, lead candidates, and there wasn't as much transnationally as you would expect, so they're really at home, they're most uh, visible. Um, but yeah, it's something um, uh, media, again, uh, like conflict, so that's something they can report about. There's a big threat they can they can do. And it's also not the first time. I mean, they've, they've done it in the previous election as well and before that. So that's something that, of course, comes back. And uh, we also have to, so some of you have mentioned, it, take into account regional differences. So um, yes, in some countries, uh, populists or far-right may do well. In other countries not uh, or even less seats than in the previous national elections so um, that is also something we should be careful of not to put them all uh, under one umbrella of course we do that but it's there they and some of you have mentioned it there'll, there'll be differences across country.
1: Well, it is now time to open on the floor for questions. So, please, you have two microphones here, uh, and you, yeah, you can uh, just go and line up. And in case you can't, uh, you can reach the microphone. And please, just raise your hand, and we can also uh, bring it. So,
6: I work with the British Quebec Chamber of Commerce here. <laughs> it's um, the question I had was that when uh, UK is marked for uh, Brexit, and it's now. On life support, like last minute reprieves and extensions. How, how come UK was allowed to participate in uh, uh, European Parliament elections? Because as you can see, uh, Nigel Farage is set to sweep, and he's a one man demolition squad coming in and will engage in demagogy um, and end up uh, like hurting the EU more than helping. And second part, second question is that you mentioned the far right is very fragmented. But initiatives like ENF in Milan last weekend and also like people like Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister, constantly complaining that left is far more fragmented than the right is, like how do you actually, uh, I guess, explain that?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, UKIP is allowed to participate, it's, it's democracy, so they, they can, of course, uh, participate in the elections, um, and as the UK as well. That was a long uh, debate, of course, uh, prior to the extension, whether the UK, because even though it wants to leave, wants to take part, um, should take part in the elections, uh, would that undermine the legitimacy of the EU, yes or no? And um, uh, well, the leaders have decided to let them participate, and I think one uh, reason for that is also uh, because it would undermine the legitimacy if they didn't participate. If they would be a member of the EU but not take part in the European Parliament elections, there's of course uh, the, uh, the treaties which you know stipulate that this this is basically the rules. This is how the political systems, political system at the EU level works. So. They need to take part and also Euro-sceptic parties uh, are allowed to take part. Politically, of course, that is then interesting, um, what happens, uh, what will they do in, inside the European Parliament. But they've been in the Parliament before and also having their, um, um, you know, rant against the EU and, and institutions and other politicians. So it's also not nothing new and also politicians in Brussels are actually quite... I think socialized and accustomed to, to that as well, in, in a way. So it's, it's nothing which is short-term threatening, I, I think, in my view, I want
4: to add, and that's a little provocative, I'm not sure the UK will actually leave. Because the longer it takes, the, the more insecure it becomes. And I mean, today, if you, read, if you need the, the read the news, even Theresa May kind of floats with the idea of having a second referendum. So I think it's important that they participate. Well, it's not UKIP; it's the Brexit Party. I mean, uh, Farage has created this new party that's now at 30%. Um, but I mean, I think it's important that they participate because I think there's a relatively high chance, chance that they will actually never leave. That's a little provocative, but I think the more we go on, and the m- and I mean, it rem- remains to be seen if we re- if the Farage really gets 30%. I think it may be drop a little bit um, closer to the election. But I think we we're making conclusions without actually being sure, because I mean, who had thought a, a year ago that they're still in? And maybe they're still in a year, still, maybe they're still in two years. So I think even from a political perspective, I mean, they participate and they haven't left yet, and they might never leave. So I think we should also keep this in mind.
5: To follow up on that and then to, to uh, get to your second question. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, you know, I think one of the, the more interesting things to think about, right, um, with, in this election, right, is the, the fact that the UK, which will leave, I think, at some point, uh, when Halloween right now is sort of the, uh, uh, the end of <laughs> October is the day we're kind of playing with, although that's changed a bit today, I think. Um, I think what's interesting is that you know if we think that the UK will leave, and we can obviously debate about that, um, the the amount of resources and uh, whether and, and campaign resources and money and all of these kinds of things that are going into running campaigns for an election that in which the UK will elect members, but they will no, not be sitting in that institution for very long should they leave let's say by the end of this year. So it is a really interesting and sort of hard to, uh, I think, wrap one's head around sort of how this is actually working. But what I think it it, it is doing is that not only is it, you know, sending sort of clear signals if the Brexit party gets 30% or 25%, right, of what perhaps the population in the UK really thinks today in 2019, the other thing that's important to mention, though, is that you know, one of the most pro-EU parties in, in the UK are the Greens, and they're polling higher than they have since the late 80s, right? They're not polling anywhere near 30%. They're polling anywhere from sort of 9 to 12%, 13%. But in the UK, that is, for the, for the Greens, actually quite good. Right? And they are, they are very clearly a pro-EU party, um, as are the Lib Dems um, that are also polling fairly well. So I think that's the other important, the flip side to this is that it's not just the 25 to 30 percent for the Brexit party, but that there are very clear pro-EU parties that are also polling very well and better than they have in the past. Um, To um, get to your second question about the left being fragmented, which is often what one hears from the far right and from the right that it's the left, right, they're sort of lobbying, sort of throwing things back and forth to each other the left is fragmented, right? You have the social democratic parties, you have greens, you have the far left, which are typically not, uh, typically more euroskeptic. But I think the, the important thing in these elections are is that you still have the left, you know, the, the, the left made up of the social democrats and the socialists, even though they may lose votes, as we've talked about before, and lose seats, they still are, you know, the first or the, likely the second largest party that will be in, the party group that will be in the European Parliament. So even though that they may be somewhat fragmented, right? They still have, you know, they're still a fairly large group. And I think the discussion among, in terms of talking about why the right, the far right is fragmented, is more to to the point of the, that this group will not have that much influence because one, they're not that big to begin with. But then even, but then they also are not in agreement. And so yes, I think. Both sides are fragmented, but it's a bit to do with sort of size and sort of relative threat as well. Uh,
3: yeah, I, I tend to agree with the uh, former speaker. So that's a bit boring. But I, I would like to, to raise another uh, point uh, that is linked a little bit. Because what I, what I remark a little bit, uh, what I notice a little bit from the, from the discussion, and I, I think I started myself, more or less, is that we very much uh, are, are talking in terms of uh, pro-EU, anti-EU. And uh, I mean, last week a report came out, uh, actually from our uh, department, <laughs> uh, about uh, the how, uh, how surprisingly uh, nuanced uh, the op- public opinion is actually, at least in the Netherlands, uh, which is, as I mentioned before, uh, not. Uh, uh, the, the country uh, in which uh, EU debates have, uh, have, have had a long history. Uh, but still, I mean, uh, there's quite some evolution and quite some uh, very nuanced uh, opinions uh, with about, you know, a very small minority wanting, well, maybe less than 20% wanting to leave and uh, even less uh, being ent- enthusiast uh, EU, pro-EU. Uh, but uh, all kinds of very nuanced opinions in uh, in between. So uh, let's uh, also in the in the clash of Brexit, for example, and uh, and the far right and the uh, very pro-EU parties. Uh, let's let's definitely not uh, not forget that the vast majority of uh, of Europeans, probably at least in the Netherlands, uh, is are, are are somewhere in between.
1: Oh, I should have mentioned that if you, uh, if you want to, to ask a question in French, I would be really happy to translate. So, also feel free to ask the, the question in any language.
7: Yeah, I just want to contribute a bit to the discussion of the UK, <clears throat> especially what Daniel was saying. The problem, I think, with the UK is its electoral system. If, in fact, it had a proportional system like elsewhere in Europe, then I think one would assume that the direction that seems to be happening a slight opening towards staying in the EU, uh, which we will see, I think, to some extent in the results of the uh, parliamentary election um, from based on the, what we're seeing in the polls. The problem is, how does that find its way into, uh, into a, an election? Uh, based on winning districts. The Greens might have 9% of the vote. The Liberal Party might have 12% of the vote. These are very strong pro-European parties, but they're not gonna win many seats unless we have some major move in that direction. So even if, so even, so if what could happen after this is a new election, especially if Theresa May leaves, my, I would sense that you could still end up with a parliament that is not in favor of staying in the EU. Now, maybe it would, relo- it would result in a second referendum where a more proportional result could, could arrive, but I still don't see that as a likely outcome given the electoral system that they have, just my contribution.
5: Uh, thank you, um, and I think the the important thing to to keep in mind with um, the UK, as um, um, as with France, is that in the European elections, it's proportional, right? So they actually, in the UK, I think has eight regions, and so which, uh, that that elect members uh, to uh, the delegation to the EP, and so this is why in the past the Greens have gotten individuals elected. Small, the SNP, the Scottish National Party in Scotland, etc. And I think it, it, you rightly point out, though, that when we then, they may get elected uh, in the elections and um, the UK votes on Thursday, they may elect Greens, Lib Dems, etc. But I think in terms of real national change, I think that will come at the next national election, which will likely be sometime, I think, later this year, in which we then revert back to the plurality system that you're all familiar with, right, which makes it very hard for um, the the small parties to do well. And the Greens and the Lib Dems have often, and this has been sort of their challenge, um, they often come in second or third because it's not proportional. And so I think you're right, I think, that that is a challenge, but I think that the UK is really at this moment of political change. I think we would probably all agree that Brexit, whether regardless of what happens with Brexit, is that we're actually seeing a really important change in the party system in the UK that's been dominated in the post-war period, for the most part, by two parties. um, And that that's changing, right? And that we've seen, obviously, the Labour Party very divided. The Conservatives in the current, uh, for the EP elections, are polling well anywhere from 4th to 6th so so they're not they're not polling very well and so i think that this is a moment where we're going to see some major change in british politics and in the party system more generally and that even with the restrictive nature of the electoral system and the rules in the national election that we are going to see i think a replacement of sort of what those two parties are and it may become you know more of a well, It's not going to become sort of the multi-party system that we see in much of continental Europe because of the rules, but we may see, for example, the Lib Dems replace the Labour Party as the second large, as one of the major parties um, on the sort of center-ish um, place in, in, in the spectrum. So I think that's an important outcome of what's been happening with, with Brexit, and that even regardless of what happens with Brexit and with the electoral rules, I do think that we're going to see some, some major shifts in, in British politics.
2: So um, I just wanted to ask if there are any uh, comments on the youth vote and whether um, within the scope of Brexit and beyond that the anti-fascist movements and the new uh, far-right movements in Europe have mobilized or will be mobilizing new um, or higher rates of participation among young voters.
4: They will go both ways. I mean, young people are very much in in pushing this pro-EU movement, like the pulse of Europe. So I think we will have a stronger youth turnout in favor, for example, of the Green Party. The Green Party will benefit from stronger youth turnout. But on the other hand, I think also some radical right parties, I mean, I can only talk about national elections, but they have disproportionately um, attracted young voters. Uh, for example the front national the front national has become from an old boys club to basically a party that disproportionately attracts young voters so i think the young young people will probably vote a little higher numbers than before the, their participation rate will still be much lower than of older generations but there will be a little higher and i think we will have this higher participation both on the pr- uh, pro eu forces and on the anti eu forces
5: I mean, I think that the um, uh, the issue, uh, the climate issue, for example, is really mobilizing young voters. Um, obviously, a lot of the the movements that have been in the in the streets in European capitals have been high school students, um, many of whom can't vote. But I think that that's translating into you know college age voters and you know younger voters as well, and that that is really a very important issue, and that um, that's what's bringing. Um, the uh, younger voters to the polls and that will be voting you know, green on that side um, as um, as well. Obviously, there's a different young uh, youth vote that's being mobilized on on the far right as well. The other thing, just to mention, um, and I think in, in your question, that younger voters overwhelmingly voted Remain in the in the Brexit referendum, um, and so I think that that again shows that a very strong sort of pro EU. Um, whatever that may mean, which may mean different things for different people, um, but that, um, that there is a very pro-EU um, sentiment um, among younger voters, not all, but, but some. So I think that that will be, um, that Brexit as well as, as climate is definitely motivating and mobilizing voters that are um, sort of on the, on the left.
8: so uh, I had two questions that I'd like to ask um, I guess one um, going off of I guess you're finding that uh, immigration actually has kind of just fallen in terms of salience if I've understood your findings correctly and we've returned to the same old top the same topics that we're accustomed to talking about in elections so I guess what I was wondering is you know I'd bought into the whole notion oh that we're seeing this huge realignment it's not not left right anymore it's this open close based on this big idea of like national identity um, Would you say that like the eurozone and the migration crisis will have actually played any sort of long-term? Will have had any sort of long-term effect or are we going to return to like some kind of pre-2008 equilibrium? Except I guess with more fragmentation as you've discussed. Um, And then the second question is um, Do you foresee any sort of? Changes in terms of how European Parliament elections will be run in the future, so that they're less second order. You know, people have all European politicians are always talking about. Oh, we need to create this European demos, a European political space. Some of them have proposed, you know, directly elected the Commission president, etc. But I was wondering whether you know any of any proposals in particular, you know, uh, make particular sense, and whether they have any chance of kind of getting through, or whether you know, just like it's it's just more convenient to just kind of muddle through. The, the system that exists today. Thank you.
5: Thinking about proposals, I will think about those too. Um, so yeah, so just to um, uh, uh, reiterate, so this was uh, uh, a public opinion survey that um, was done in the last few weeks. Um, I was not part of this, but um, colleagues were, and it was held just to give you a sense, in seven countries, so Denmark, Germany, France, Hungary, Italy, Poland, and Spain, so sort of a diverse selection of countries, and in no country, um, there was no single issue, right, that, that uh, defined uh, what the most important issue was that voters were thinking about, and in no country um, did immigration come above fourth. So yeah, um, which is interesting, right, again, because that is perhaps not the expectation given the media, again, uh, given sort of, uh, uh, you know, the the sort of political context um, as well. Um, And so I think that that's important, and I I think that says, again, this is just seven of 28 countries, um, so, you know, we don't want to make too much of this, but I think that it's a fairly representative sample of of, of voters across different European countries, um, which is to say that, not that immigration isn't important, right, on a list of 20, it's still you know, fourth, fourth, fifth, sixth, et cetera, but that voters really are thinking of other issues. And so perhaps, you know, at this point we might be going back to, although it's hard to say sort of a pre-2008 sort of equilibrium, but I think that we are perhaps past some of those, that huge spike, uh, well, of course, in sort of immigration numbers and that perhaps, although again i think we'll need a lot some time to sort of analyze results and how people are voting and then of course go back and ask people after the election what the most important issue was but i do think that we're returning to a time when to a period where there are other issues that are that are on the minds of voters right things that you know things like the economy unemployment etc Now, the tricky thing is, which is always important to keep in mind, is that even though someone may not be saying immigration is one of the most important issues, immigration may be informing their opinions about the economy and trade and inequality and things like that also. And so this is always a bit of the challenge of trying to understand sort of public opinion polls. But I would say, in my opinion, I think that we are seeing a return to some of those other um, sort of more sort of traditional political issues even though they may be informed by the the current the, the current context which invo- which involves immigration.
4: The second question I think you know institutions are sticky. And I think that applies also to the to the EU, to the European it's very, very hard to implement. And so I don't see any any changes. Um, for the, I, I want to nuance um, JJ's answer a little bit. I agree immigration is not the most important topic anymore, but it might still be a very important topic for those who vote for the, even if it's only 20%, but for these 20%, it might still be a very, very important um, topic. And it also fits very well in the European context with this anti establishment, anti EU. And so, I mean, these often go together. So I still think, and I mean, I, I, and, and you know, the, before the refugee crisis, immigration was very low-key. And for example, some parties like the German RFD they were basically dead. And, they, and then they profited from it. And I think what will be important for those who decided to turn to them, I mean, we in, in, political or in, in election studies, we say after you've voted three times for a party, you become a regular voter. Of this party, and I think what the danger is, and uh, will they? I mean, now we're reaching soon the third election, and so this, they, they might establish actually a vote base. Immigration might be at the at the basis of this vote base, but then it's very hard to once they have like develop this this, this regularity, call it. It's very hard to um, yeah to to change their vote. So even if it might not be immigration anymore, but immigration was the trigger issue that made them aligned with these parties. And I think once they become regular voters, it's also very hard to, yeah, to tear them away. That's kind of my, my little spill. Yeah, definitely. Um,
3: I, I think what, uh, what, what uh, just to add on to this, what also should be kept in mind is that uh, these, these salience figures uh, so, what is most important to uh, voters at a particular point in time uh, tend to be very fickle. So they might actually change very fast, uh, usually not during a campaign, uh, but then still it, it might uh, because of uh, all kinds of uh, uh, events that uh, might happen, uh, uh, thinking about uh, riots or uh, terrorist attacks, or it can be, uh, be any uh events or uh, particular debates uh, so in that sense I wouldn't read too much uh, into uh, in, in into that um, but a second point is uh, whether you know whether we uh, are uh, will will go back to such uh, equilibrium uh, yeah to reiterate my my point ear- earlier I I, I I really doubt that simply because uh, in the eyes of the 20, perhaps uh, 30% of Europeans who are very, very uh, concerned about immigration and integration issues, um, not much has uh, been solved, probably. And such a crisis can uh, occur again, and again, uh, blow uh, these uh, parties, they, et cetera, again, uh, and blow new life into these, uh, these, uh, these, these parties at any moment. So in that sense, uh, I think, uh, um, yeah, I would not uh, see such equilibrium coming uh, under these circumstances. No. Yeah,
2: uh, thank you. Uh, the second question. <laughs> um, yeah, um, Daniel mentioned institutions are very uh, sticky. Uh, and to elaborate, of course, uh, the EU is very complex, and it's not only supranational institutions, it's also intergovernmental institutions. So for instance, one example is it's every European Parliament election is publicly uh, criticized by the media and also voters who are aware of it, for instance, that the European Parliament is a traveling circus, so it has a seat in Brussels and a seat in Strasbourg. And it's actually MEPs themselves who want to change it, but they don't have a majority for this. And actually, it's uh, still an old agreement with France, and France exists, uh, um, insists that also uh, one of the seats of the major institutions is in France, which otherwise wouldn't happen. We have, of course, Luxembourg, we have Hague, uh, we have other, kind uh, Frankfurt with the ECB. Um, so that's something the European Parliament itself cannot change, and is often wrongly accused of wasting taxpayers' money, whereas MEPs don't actually want to do that. So just to, uh, this just one example to see that it's, it's not very easy to change things. Uh, similarly with uh, the election, direct election of the European Commission President, of course uh, there needs to be probably a, a treaty change for this, Um, Yeah, and uh, for now, as good as it gets is is the election through Parliament, Um, um, and yeah, to raise turnout, that was their intention as well. There was another idea uh, which is not yet implemented, or has not yet uh, been uh, implemented, is um, a transnational So, when Brexit became more uh, uh, tangible, uh, there were proposals uh, by members of the European Parliament to use some of the seats uh, distributed by transnational lists, basically. But that didn't get a majority in Parliament. Um, it's also, again, I, I would see similar problems as currently with with uh, lead candidates that, you know, voters cannot make sense, you know. Who's on the list uh, uh, um, um, for Dutch? Another uh, German or Danish or Bulgarian? Why would I vote for them? I don't know them. So that's of course. Then, if it comes up again, we, we, we need to talk about uh, about these things and possible consequences. Um, and in general, I think, um, as we've seen with more media attention, also uh, generally, also that voters are aware of European affairs. That we need to show, there needs to be information that the EU is important to, uh, not only with these big uh, uh, crises, uh, but also of course in daily life, so that is something um, that will naturally evolve more and more uh, over time, Um, and then uh, it may not be directly um, um, linked to voter turnout. We also have to bear in mind that it's of course not only turnout in EU elections declining, but also in, in national elections or regional elections, so there's fluctuation over time as well.
0: Um, yeah, so um, these are my points, thanks. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not asking my own questions, I'm asking a couple of questions that have been asked through, uh, through Twitter. Uh, I've selected two really different questions. Um, so that may, maybe different people can respond to to, to, to one of them. Uh, first question is regarding the issues that, that, that are being discussed in in the campaigns in the different countries. For these European elections, we've talked a lot about immigration, about the environment, about Euroscepticism, but what has not been covered yet is the importance of external relations. Has there been any attention to um, the position of the European Union towards Russia, towards the US, towards China—is that getting any any attention at all by the the parties uh, and uh, within this this election campaign? And then the second question on a on a different topic uh, is on the Spitzenkandidaten, actually, um, mm-hmm. where the where, where the kind of agreement in, in, in the panel was that th- this probably is not going to change much, and we have to wait and see. And and regardless of who's going to end up in, 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 in power or, or be, be in charge of, of, of gaining the majority in parliament, it's not going to change much. The question here is do you really think it doesn't make a difference whether Manfred Weber becomes the new uh, president of the commission or Franz Timmermans? Uh, does it really not matter at all or might there be a difference there?
2: Um, um, yes, of course, it makes a a uh, difference later on who is uh, in, in uh, well the president of the European Commission we've seen, I mean this is uh, a bit different research, but we've seen um, that uh, of course uh, the personalities of uh, commission presidents also matter for. Uh, integration, so to what extent certain laws are, or further integration is actually uh, put through the relationship with uh, member states, um, also uh, the relationship with Parliament, so that also really depends a bit on on the Commission President. So and of course these two men, I mean they're both men, uh, both uh, from uh, uh, founding members, they are both um, experienced in, in the EU, basically. Uh, Franz Zimmerman also has uh, national political experience. And, um, yeah, I mean, they are both from different parties, so that will, of course, also play a role in that sense. Um, but they are, of course, from uh, two. What I want to say is that two centrist parties, pro-European, so for voters it may not make much difference, but later on for the relationship between institutions, um, that may matter. Um, yeah, and, But also we have to see uh, what kind of majorities uh, are there for in the council, but also in the parliament for either of the candidates.
5: Your to the first question <laughs> that was asked about the external relations. You know, I would say, and, and, and my uh, colleague can 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 add to this, that I don't think that external relations has really played a large role in the in the in the campaigns um, in terms of the relationship, with one exception, which is Russia. Um, but um, that it, it is obviously, you know, China has increasing investments in in, in in the EU with Belt and Road, obviously the ongoing perhaps tension between the US and the EU more generally, but I, my sense is, is that um, it really hasn't played that much of a role. I think really what we're seeing is really the relationship between some of these far-right parties that we've mentioned and, and the relationship with Russia and how close they are and, um, you know various connections and things like that. Um, the recent scandal that um, has has come out in in uh, in Austria with the with the Freedom Party and um, sort of a backroom deal that was going on between the vice chancellor and. Uh, some uh, nieces of oligarchs in Russia over the, over the <laughs> over a newspaper, right, I think has sort of perhaps made that, uh, that issue, of course, salient um, for, for Austrian voters. And I think the, the issue of Russia more generally and just sort of Russia's involvement in elections across the board um, is, is definitely something that has become, whether not necessarily sort of uh, an issue when voters are asked sort of what the most important issue is, that isn't one of them, but I think that that is kind of underlying, um, at least um, on, on among, among the far right parties, um, um, you know, some of, 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 that, of that tension among, among those parties as well.
3: Uh, My question is, do you think that the recent uh, political scandal in Austria could impact uh, the success of the far-right parties in the uh, European elections?
4: Not that much. I mean, again, because I can give you the example of France. It's not really reported. So I don't think it really helps or it really hurts the Front National. I think it will might have, it has a, an impact in, in Austria for sure, but Austria has very few seats, so I think they have two right now, the FPA, so if that goes down to one, that doesn't change, doesn't change a lot. Um, in Germany, I think it might have sm- a small influence, because Germany it's very much reported, it was German newspaper who broke the scandal. So I think in Germany the RFD, instead of like 13, 15%, which we are hoping, maybe they go under 10, but I think that's the most impact, and even I'm not sure, but it's the most impact it could have.
3: Uh, I'm, I'm also very skeptical um, uh, for two reasons. One is that um, I think uh, to, to find out whether such a thing has an effect you really have to put yourself in the shoes of a, of a voter Uh, of for these parties and uh, well the three main issues for on the basis of which uh, Europeans vote for anti-immigration parties are immigration, immigration and immigration. Uh, So if you're like uh, very much concerned about immigration do you then, I mean, then the question becomes of course, okay uh, to what extent do you care that some um some politician is uh turns out to be corrupt uh many of uh, of of these people think that most politicians are corrupt anyway or that he's framed or something like that. so in that sense uh, I don't think uh, uh, so that would be my my first uh point to be very uh. Uh, skeptical about really big effects on, uh, on far-right uh, would-be voters. And the second reason is um, we did a study in, uh, in, in the Netherlands uh, where we looked at uh, the um, association. Uh, so if, if you associate particular parties, it was PVV and also for the Forum for Democratie, with, um, uh, with parties such as Front National uh, at the time. Uh, FPE, uh, Vlaams Belang, Um, what did did that uh, actually do? And it turns out that voters in the Netherlands at least think that, uh, or assume that uh, Front National, uh, FPE, Vlaams Belang, that these are uh, extreme right, uh, largely homophobic uh, uh, parties, etc. Even if they don't think that their own PVV or forum for democracy is Right, so uh, it worked very stigmatizing. Uh, so in the sense that if uh, if you told uh, uh, far right voters uh, that the uh, PVV and Forum for Democracy uh, were actually close friends with uh, uh, with uh, uh, FPE and uh, Marine Le Pen, etc., uh, they uh, you know they basically backed off. So they. Uh, It reduced their perceived legitimacy of the PVV in this uh, particular case, and of the Forum for Democracy too. And it reduced also their propensity to vote for that party. Uh, Which basically means that, uh, you know, I mean, (laughs) uh, there's a lot of uh, Europeans probably, at least in the Netherlands, uh, that uh, whatever they, they for themselves vote. Uh, still think that uh, these anti-immigration parties, such as FPO in another country, are—they are really like you know—we don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, um, so uh, that's the second reason to be very skeptical. That, uh, uh, at it, uh, probably uh, many Europeans in other countries, even if they're uh, very much concerned about immigration, do not want to have anything to do with FPO. And therefore a corruption scandal in the FBA will probably not have much effect.
9: Hi, uh, bonsoir uh, Johannes Müller-Gomez de University de Montréal. Uh, I would have two issues I would to like to raise or to come back. First, the question Ruth just mentioned and to which uh Katiana answered about the difference between the two candidates. And I think like, I think there are several Europeans in the room, and I think we really would, I need to really catch the people that really would make a difference. It makes a difference whether we've got Weber at the commission, or whether we've got Timmermans. Timmermans, an enthusiastic uh, European, passionate, uh, feminist in favor of climate action. Weber, not very charismatic. Somehow finds himself in a dilemma between, he's pro-European at the same time, he's a friend of Orban. He, he doesn't want to, um, yeah, lose votes uh, w- on the right. So. I would like to really hear your opinion on that. What do you think? What can be Timmermans' or Weber's uh, impact on the future commission? And how, to which extent do you think they can have really an impact on the direction to which Europe is going to develop the next five years? My second point um, you mentioned the rise of uh, right wing parties, um, the low turnout we can expect for the next elections. Um, Well, if we imagine it's Christmas today and you've got one wish. Uh, how to reform the European Union. What do you think, or is there like one thing we should r- absolutely do to reform the European Union to make it more attractive to people, to encourage people to uh, uh, use their vote, to um, maybe also to um, somehow uh, contribute con- uh, contribute to uh, yeah, reduce your Euro- Euro- skepticism among uh, EU citizens? Uh, you mentioned already lists the direct election of the European Commissioner, of the president of the European Commission. Is there one thing you really would say that's the most important uh, reform we have to implement in the next uh, five years? Thank you.
1: Who wants to start with the Christmas wish?
3: (laughs) Well, my my Christmas wish wish, uh, would at at first first phase, excellent question actually, uh, would simply be more democracy. I mean, uh, with a capital D. That is the bottom line, I think, of, uh, of everything. More transparency, more democracy, more of uh, political conflict and uh, showing what, uh, what is really at stake and try to engage uh, voters by actual uh, power and actual power clashes. Uh, I think that is uh, what, uh, what is uh, lacking most in, uh, in the EU politics uh, at this uh, moment. Ask me my wish, right? <laughs> I mean, when I, when I can get to do a wish, I, I'm, I'm not asked, like, how, <laughs> usually. <laughs> but I will think about it.
4: <laughs> I think the first question, it really depends what happens. I mean, the last five years was basically crisis mode. We had the financial crisis, and then we had the refugee crisis and it took up most of the time. If we have five years without crisis, I think it can make a difference who is, who, who, who is Commission President. Because they can, can push a little bit their own agenda. Um, for the second questions, I would say more integration. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the problem is right now we have like asymmetrical immigration. For example, I would like to have a European army. I would like to have a European foreign policy. Uh, uh, and I think that my wish would be that the pro-European forces have the, the courage also, also to overcome national boundaries, let's say, when it comes to an army. When it comes to, for example, why do European countries need, several countries need atomic weapons? I mean, it's, it's enough if the European Union has one arsenal itself. Why does France need to have their own? So I think that if states really war uh, talk Walk the walk and even go. Yeah, I, I, w- I would say answer this, 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 um, this, this, criti- this Euro by more integration and show that. Um, yeah, more more cooperation is possible in other fields as well, and I think that's kind of a little bit the crux we are in. There's a lot of cooperation in some fields, but very mm-hmm. much lack of cooperation in others. And, and 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 I think to really show that the European Union can carry the project one step further.
9: I mean,
2: uh, I agree with, with both of you that uh, there's, of course, a, a lot has to be done still and developed on the one hand, uh, from a researcher perspective it makes it very exciting to study something which is still evolving uh, every time we think okay what, like an event here what can happen next what are possible consequences that's very exciting so um, <laughs> but on the other hand as an EU citizen I of course also uh, um, I wouldn't ask generally for more democracy because uh, I mean, it's a democratic system. Um, there, at least from the proce- the procedures are there. You, what you're uh, missing is perhaps uh, a bit of more conflict or uh, uh, media attention, also. So that's something uh, that needs to be solved. Also uh, with, with journalists, but also then uh, I would ask voters to be more interested in it. So that would be perhaps uh, a wish. Um, but coming back to your uh, question about the two candidates, well. Um, I was answering from, of course, from a voter perspective uh, because for voters who have never heard of them, it doesn't really matter. And I have to say uh, they are, of course, both pro-EU, even though, of course, um, um, Weber, there were the issues with Orbán's Fidesz in the party and stuff, but still he's a pro-European candidate for a pro-European party. He may have different ideas from Timmermans. but. In that sense, they, they don't differ on that aspect. They, of course, come from different parties. But you also have to uh, remember that once you are commissioned president, uh, you become a bit more neutral. You can, of course, have your agenda in terms of what do we want to tackle in the next few years, uh, and who do we select as, as, as um, fellow uh, commissioners on the cabinet. But um, it's not like a national government where, we c- where they can say, OK, for the next five years, it's youth unemployment that we want to work on, and only that. Of course, they will also uh, tackle that, but they cannot—they don't have the leeway to decide that uh, themselves only. They can help other institutions uh, developing it together, but it's not up to—it's not the president uh, of the United States, for instance—who uh, you know has really the agenda-setting power there. So, in that sense. Um, one may be more likable than the others to some voters but it's 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 really not uh, um, um, nothing um, too uh, impactful perhaps yeah thanks so to go
5: back to your christmas question which is a really great question and i've been sitting here thinking as everyone has been talking and trying to come up with something really provocative um which i haven't really um, because I mean I think it's it's a, it's a, it's an important question, and I think I would say, you know, as as Yo said that you know that if I had a wish for you know how to improve <laughs> um, the European Union would be to increase transparency and make it less complicated, right? I think the prop the, the fact that we have the council, the commission, the Parliament, Right? It, it is very complicated, right? And now we have the lead candidate that's being elected for, as the, the leading candidate of the party in the parliament that's going to be then the commission president and it's perhaps not clear what the commission does relative to the council, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and so I think that that, that complicates things and that takes away from sort of small D democracy or large D democracy, right? And if the idea of reforming the EU and to make it more democratic, not that it's not, but if we think that democracy, and again, this is a bit comes with what you think democracy, right? Is democracy sort of, uh, you know, clear understanding of how the institutions work? Is it higher levels of turnout, right? We've talked about, you know, the the low levels of voter turnout, right? And and I don't think it's actually been mentioned in in all of what we've said, but that turnout in the last election was about 43 percent. In the first election, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was about 62, 63 percent, right? So we have seen somewhat this sort of steady decline, just to put sort of that into perspective. But sort of obviously there's a reason for that, right? And there's all sorts of research that's talked about why you have a founding election, lots of turnout at first, and then it goes down. We're getting towards the end, not to get into that. But I think, that again, not. It, it, I think it depends what we think about sort of what more democracy looks like. I would say that it needs. We need to infuse sort of more democracy and increase turnout and increase knowledge and perhaps make things less complicated. How we do that and how we perhaps uh, eliminate a set of institutions. I don't know if we we could even go that far. Again, at this point in sort of the European project and in integration, but I think that that would sort of go a long way to. Reaching some of these goals of democracy, increased transparency, knowledge, etc. So that's in five minutes what I'm thinking, but it's a very important question.
3: Yeah, um, to to come back to uh, <laughs> uh, my uh, elaboration on the on the how of the wish. Um, I, I think uh, at, at least two points that I also wish for, uh, for national uh, Dutch uh, democracy. I worked in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Parliament for a while. And then I think two, uh, two measures are clearly very important. One is uh, much more transparency in terms of finance and uh, also party finance, for example. But second and uh, perhaps most important is much more power for uh, Parliament, both in terms of uh, actual uh, institutional, really like uh, having uh, even more uh, power uh, vis-à-vis uh, the uh, executive, and also uh, in terms of uh, of, of, of simply um, staffing, uh, right? Of support uh, staff, um, as uh, at least uh, the Dutch Parliament is permanently uh, understaffed and. Uh, not sh- sure about the European uh, uh, Parliament, but it's probably not uh, uh, not bad to, uh, to um, uh, give some more uh, resources there, too. Uh, but then again, uh, on a final note, I mean, this is we're talking about a startup democracy here, right? A startup institution. Uh, so in that sense, do not expect uh, wishes to come through uh, very fast, I guess. Well, it's a very optimistic so
1: note. Um, maybe we should reconvene you know in like forty forty years so that we can uh, evaluate whether the wish has become true or not. Um, well, I would like to thank the audience for the very interesting uh, question questions uh, also the the virtual audience uh, through Twitter uh, Now that uh, this event is coming to an end, I would also like to uh, thank the um, Jean Monnet Center Montreal team and the Center for the Study of Democracy team for the organization. I would also like to acknowledge the uh, three funding agencies th- uh, without which this event would not have been possible, so the Fonds de Recherche du Québec pour la Société et la Culture, the Canadian Social Science and Humanity Research Council, and the Erasmus Plus Programme for the European Commission. Obviously, I also would like to thank our four panelists for this insightful discussion. And please join me in a row of applause uh, to thank them. Good evening.